Okay, we'll get rolling here. So welcome everyone. I'm Tom Miller, editor of SolarView Magazine and marketing director here at Baywa RE Solar Systems. It's great to be back for another Solar Town Hall. We took a brief two-week stint, a little break there to plan future town halls and our other programming. So it's good to be back with our solar community. Um, And so to open our show, we're going to bring up Boaz Soifer, the CEO of Baywa RE Solar Systems, and he's going to give a few introductory remarks. Good morning, Boaz. Good to see you again. Thanks for joining. Good morning, Tom. And uh, yeah, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to our panelists and uh, to Tom and Jessica for for organizing this event. Um, What comes up for me is as we start talking about reopening the economy is um, we all need to get back to work. Um, We need to take care of our our livelihoods. We need to take care of our families. Um, And there are a lot of really practical but complex considerations about how we do that. Um, Everything from um, the health and safety of our um, employees and our customers and our communities, liability issues. Um, And I know we're gonna be talking about a lot of those today. Um, In addition to that, um, I think there's also a a real psychological issue at play in um, how we go back to work. And I think um, some people uh, want to get back to normal and some people want to move towards a new normal. And some of us are of more than one mind about that, uh, where we're trying to figure out how to strike a balance between back to normal and a new normal. And um, the new normal really has a different set of principles associated with it than back to normal. Everything from digitalization, um, especially in the sales process in the solar industry, Um, Globally, supply chain resilience and how that's going to be prioritized over um, just-in-time or lowest cost or or other principles. Um, Environmental concerns. Um, A few weeks ago, I shared some pictures of dolphins swimming in the canals in Venice, um, and that's still inspiring for me. And um, really bringing our learnings from the last nine weeks and our new awarenesses forward into a a new reality. And I think we have a lot of business leaders on our solar town halls. And I think that the balancing act that business leaders need to perform to navigate this back to normal versus new normal um, could be really tricky. Um, It's a rational exercise for sure, uh, but it is also a psychological one uh, because we have to ask ourselves which of our pre-existing mental models still serve us and which ones are maybe ripe for transformation. Um, We need to listen to our teammates. We need to listen to our customers. And really in this time, we need to stay as open-minded as possible about um, what a new reality could entail and what transition could really mean for us. And, And maybe there's opportunity to even bring more meaning into that. So, um, yeah, just to, to conclude, I'm really excited to see how the solar community in particular, kind of as stewards of emerging awareness in so many ways, confronts that balancing act. And i um, really excited to learn from all of you on this call and moving forward um, and, and um, seeing how we innovate um, really on every level 
um, individually, organizationally, um, in terms of our industry um, in, in response to these challenges and opportunities. So yeah, super happy to be here and uh, thank you. Great, thanks Boaz. Um, so before we get to our panelists, I wanna ask you a question. So while some solar installers have been installing throughout COVID, um, many contractors are just starting to pick up again um, as e restrictions ease around the country. And this is happening because states are tracking infection rates and hospitalizations, and they're making decisions based on, their, on that data. But there's also a lot of political and public pressure to reopen as well. So there are a variety of factors at play when we talk about what reopening really means. Um, but it does seem like cases are starting to slow down. We're at about 1,500 deaths a day, um, but that data is lagging. So we, we need a little longer to, to tell if that's really a downward trend. So we're calling this town hall, what does reopening look like? But when we talk about reopening, you know, what we're talking about is slowly moving in, in a direction. Um, and we need to be prepared for possible shutdowns in the future. So when you're thinking about, um, you know, what does it take to really reopen the economy, Boaz? What does um, a real reopening look like and what's it going to take for us to get there? That's a big question, Tom. Um, and, and if we're talking about reopening the whole economy, I think there's still a lot of unknowns. <clears throat> um, one thing that we're seeing in France and uh, Germany, Italy, um, Iran also is um, about three weeks after quote unquote reopening, um, there has been an upsurge in, um, in new cases. So, so one thing we have to pay very close attention to is caution. Um, some of those countries have quite a bit more testing capacity than we still have in the US. Um, so um, they might be able to react faster than we do, but um, regardless, if cases increase, we'll see hospitalizations start to increase again too, and, and that'll be pretty apparent. Um, as businesses, I think that means we have to um, not only be cautious in, in going back out to, to do our work, but also um, be planning for the potential that you mentioned of restrictions coming back um, or, or if restrictions don't come back despite a surge in cases, how we want to navigate that as businesses. Um, but on a, on a bigger scale, I'm really curious about um, some of the other unknowns. Like we, we don't know how hurt the universe of small businesses in the United States is yet, right? The unemployment numbers tell us something. Um, bankruptcy numbers are starting to tell us something. PPP data is starting to tell us something, but we don't really have a complete picture yet. And there's still this idea that the whole travel and leisure segment of the economy might drag significantly behind um, the rest of the recovery. And that could put quite a bit of drag on the economy in general. It, it's a big segment of the economy in the United States. And if airlines and, um, and sports and um, hotels and uh, resorts and you know all all those um, kinds of businesses um, can't come back for quite some time. You know what does that do uh, in in terms of um, overall economic health? And I have trouble visualizing how those parts of the economy can pivot. So those are some of my you know off the top of my head thoughts about it. Okay, 
Great. So let's start to bring up our guest today. And today we'll be talking mostly about, you know, employees, crew health, uh, mental and physical health, liability concerns around bringing crews back to work, um, compliance with federal and state guidelines. Uh, we'll also touch on home, homeowner confidence and, and dealing with customers. So today uh, I'd like to welcome our guests. We have, we have Stephen Crawley from GodSafety.com. Uh, Doug Esposito from Owen Dunn Insurance Services. I'm not seeing him on the screen just yet. Um, on the contractor side, we have Grant Farrell. Uh, there's Doug there. Uh, we have Grant Farrell. He's president and CFO of Enable Energy. Um, and we have Lamara Darbaloff from Sunbug in Massachusetts. Good morning. Uh, we have Catherine Kent, president of the Solar Store in Arizona. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, Grant, I'd like to kick it off with you. To, let's talk about the challenge. Um, I think your experience demonstrates uh, the challenges that we're facing, uh, that are facing a lot of solar contractors right now. When you and I spoke a few weeks ago, you were spending quite a bit of time focused on how to get your employees back to work, keep them safe and healthy, and also find the right information to make your decisions. What were those initial challenges? You know, what questions were you asking yourself uh, around those issues and how did you go about addressing them? Yeah. Thanks, Tom and Boaz, for having uh, me on and, and for Baywall for putting these together. Uh, these have been a great source of information for the community. Um, the health and safety of our employees has been our, our single priority throughout this. Many of us are essential businesses. And so while we're talking about reopening, we've been partially open through this. And, and figuring out how to navigate through this has been a challenge. At the beginning, there was limited information. This came so fast and, and wasn't, wasn't um, something that anyone expected. So we were contacting Cal OSHA. We were contacting our safety consultants. We were contacting insurance providers, asking for guidance and what we could do early on. And we're, we're looking for that. Uh, ultimately, what we concluded is that we needed to be above anything we could hear uh, from, from the different jurisdictions, whether they be local or federal, and what we could do, and be cautious in, in doing it. Uh, we, we proceeded with the idea of we need to be consistent and fair, that this is a voluntary uh, thing, um, that, that because we're going to focus on the employee, um, it's personal for each employee. Uh, each of us are reacting to this differently, have different family situations at home, and maybe have different high-risk issues that, that need to be mindful. Uh, at the beginning, we were asking questions like, is this an ADA issue? Uh, is this an insurance issue? How do we think about workers' compensation insurance claims associated with this? How do we balance PPE that we provide? Is face coverings even PPE? Uh, and then if we do think it is PPE, are we to be going out and procuring in competition to our healthcare system that PPE? And how do we balance a, 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 a true desire that we need to protect the healthcare system first with then how do you find the right protective gear for your own employees? I think there's a the challenge with contractors uh, is you've got field staff and office staff. In being consistent, how do you come up with policies that you can apply to both? Field staff often come at, at unique times, often earlier in the morning, might come and go during the day, come into more contact with the public. So it's difficult to be consistent there. 
uh, what we ultimately decided to do for our business uh, is that we are doing, um, uh, we set up a digital survey. Uh, each employee has access to that digital survey. If they don't, there's a paper survey. That survey is completed before they leave the home in the morning. It includes a temperature check where you put the temperature into the survey. And then that survey, if anything comes up that indicates that there could be a risk, goes to the manager and a few others. And then we determine before the employee leaves to come to work, or if they don't have the ability to do it digital, before they enter the office, we have determined through a series of eight, 10 questions and a temperature check if there's a risk of them coming to the office. So we've tried to prevent um, anyone who could have symptoms from coming and contaminating the office. Uh, we do that at the morning, uh, and then we don't do it again through the day because we found that to be difficult and are looking for best practices uh, on, on what that is. Uh, and, and that allows our field staff to be able to do some uh, self-certification of temperature and to, to answer what their question. We also have provided uh, a cloth mask that's washable to all employees, and then we have disposable masks that are available to them. We have offered to provide thermometers to anyone who, who, who does not. One challenge we had, when, since you mentioned challenges, Tom, is we had a hard time getting quality masks at the beginning. We still are having an issue with finding quality masks, if you, if, assuming you're avoiding the N95 or other things. Uh, in California, you have some jurisdictions who are requiring or, or suggesting face shields, which are more commonly used in, in healthcare. So we're trying to, to balance that again. Um, our challenges were no different than anybody else, and, and we were looking for the best practices as to what to follow. I think that best practices, though, might not always be practical or possible in any scenarios, and the best practice for the office environment is going to be different job site to job site. So what we've done is just make sure we're paying attention. Uh, your and Boga's comment to listen, I think, is very important, more so than ever. We need to have effective communication with our teams. We need to be listening to our teams for feedback to, act, to suggest what could be different. And then we need to be listening to other peers to, to see what the best examples are out there. Great. Thanks, Grant. Hey, Steve, let's bounce over to you as, a, as our safety expert on the call. Um, there's a whole mix of guidance out there at the federal, state, local level. How are you parsing that guidance and recommending uh, to people what they should be paying attention to? You know, we're telling a lot of our clients right now that um, they should be listening and uh, the guidance from their local counties and states. And here's the reason. Uh, the CDC on a federal level is sending that information to some of the health departments down in the states and some of the counties. And, and what you're finding is uh, even within the state, and I'll give you an example of a big state of California. In California, um, this month, and it's ending, um, it's ending the 30th the 30th, I think, of May, but uh, some counties have had a health order where certain large construction sites have had to have certain individuals actually tasked with um, a job where they do nothing but uh, wipe down and sanitize and, and educate the people at the job site. And that also includes a third party to come in and do audits uh, on a consistent cadence to make sure that those rules are being done. Um, so, so being paying attention to your local county information is is terribly important, especially when we're getting permits from those counties. So. Yeah, great, thanks, uh, Lamara. Uh, let's pull you in from Sunbug uh, in Massachusetts. You've been installing throughout COVID. Uh, in terms of health and safety, can you tell us where you were when COVID first hit, uh, and where are you now? What initial steps did you take? What lessons have you learned 
Were you following the CDC guidance? Like, how, how did, tell us about your approach. Sure. Um, thank you for having me today. You're welcome. Uh, I was actually physically flying to New Mexico <laughs> when the state of Massachusetts declared, you know, state of emergency for COVID. Um, and I kind of joked the morning that I left, like, do you think while I'm gone, this will become a really serious thing? Um, so it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then when I got off the plane, I, you know, had all the texts and everything. So I kind of jumped on it immediately. And I reached out to our safety consultant, the company that we work with for our safety gear, um, just to get an initial check on what they were seeing in the industry because, you know, this is not just with solar. Um, construction is essential work in all of Massachusetts. So there are plenty of companies outside of solar that my safety company works with. Yeah. And they gave me a little guidance to begin with and our operations team as a whole checked in about the CDC guidelines, OSHA guidelines. Um, and it was kind of obvious stuff in the beginning, right? It was wash your hands a lot. Um, you know, avoid contact with people, try to cover your face as much as possible, disinfect and wash everything often. So those were our, our main focus points in the beginning. Um, we keep a lot of that stuff on hand in general. Anyway, we have face masks and gloves for our, our field teams. Um, and so we knew right away we were going to be able to cover our initial needs. But my job in procurement is to make sure that there's a supply. And it's true that it kind of pulls at your heartstrings. You're thinking to yourself, am I taking this away from the healthcare industry? Maybe I don't take the N95, I take the next option um, down so that the right materials are going to healthcare. And we got together and created a plan that worked specifically for our company, right? That was one of the CDC guidelines was not one plan works for every industry and not one plan works interdepartmentally for your one company. So we addressed the areas that we thought a potential spread could happen. We addressed those areas of business that, you know, out in the field, there are various points of contact with customers. With sales, there are various points of contact with customers, but those points of contact are different. Um, so we kind of brought all of those potential issues to the forefront, addressed them with PPE, um, new standard operating processes, and it's we executed that immediately. Um, you know, we have to tell customers what our plan is right away because we're still working. So we formed that plan as a team, executed it, and we've kind of been installing right along. We're, we're cruising. Um, right now we're really comfortable with it. At first, it was kind of a rocky start. Uh, you know, the one, one thing we did with the hand washing stations, our construction manager is very creative and he said, well, we have to have the option, right? That has to be available to every team. Uh, so we got portable hand washing stations and we equipped every crew truck with a portable hand washing, washing station. It gets filled with water every morning, uh, loaded on the truck and they take it off as soon as they get there. It reassures our client, right? That we're not going to come inside or ask to use their bathroom. 
Mm. Um, and it reassures our coworkers that they are safe at work and if they want to wash their hands, they can. Um, we provide gloves and face masks, cloth and disposable face masks, um, to, just so that they have the choice, you know, depending on what they want. Uh, we want them to be comfortable. We also um, have hand sanitizer, bleach, and soap on every truck. Uh, we, the, the last thing we did to avoid the close contact guideline was we are rotating crews in and out of the warehouse on a schedule. So when they get there in the morning, they know their crew has a 20 minute slot from this time to this time, and they need to be moving out for the next crew to move in so that everyone is spaced apart appropriately. Yeah, great. Thanks for, for that insight. That's really interesting about the, the hand, uh, the portable sinks too. Hey, Catherine, uh, I'd like to jump over to you. Um, uh, from our previous conversation, it sounds like you're implementing some of the same things uh, in terms of rotating staff. You know, tell us what you've uh, implemented in the last seven to eight weeks. Well, I was actually driving back from the leadership summit when things got, got bad this on the west side of the, the country. And so um, had a lot of time to think about it. And we immediately got together with the management team and um, we established a three level approach <clears throat> depending on how bad things got. And it didn't take us long to go from level one, which was having, uh, we were already set up to have voice over IP for our, our uh, office staff. So they were able to move quickly. I mean, uh, uh, VPN and voice over IP phones so they can just move their phones home. So we had two people in the office and then level two, which we got to very quickly was one person in the office. <clears throat> we have a retail um, showroom, which is probably a little different than most of the people that might be on this call. And so we put a doorbell out there. They need to uh, customers that need to come in. We, we suggest that they make an appointment, but they ring the doorbell so that people are not just coming in. We cycle people in and out. There's times if they don't have a mask now, we, we will just talk to them out on the, in the parking lot and hand them their parts there. Um, but then we have to clean up after everyone that comes in and, and clean that up. So I think that, um, you know, besides all the signage, which is now on the doors and everywhere about, um, you know, if you don't feel well, don't come in. Uh, one of the things that kind of came up to a surprise from us as a lesson is that pretty early on, uh, one of our uh, vendors um, had a COVID diagnosis and we were driving over to pick up our material and they were closed for two weeks. So, um, um, it, it was a steel company, so it, you know, there, there were some options that we could do, but that really may, opened up the fact that having, uh, you know, multiple suppliers available in case this happens with other, um, other vendors. We've not had that happen with another vendor so far, but we have, I have heard of some of my CEU groups, our, our bigger general contractors, that they show up one day and the site's been closed down because there was a diagnosis. So, um, you know, it's just learning to be flexible and, you know, and listening to the customers and listening to our own staff members to find out what they need. Yeah, great. Thank you. We're doing uh, a lot of the same things, but I'm, I, you see me looking down, I'm writing notes. So <laughs> we're learning more. 
Good. I'm glad this is helpful. Uh, one thing that, that you mentioned was, and maybe Jessica can toss the, the link in the uh, chat window, but you mentioned that you're part of the LG Pro program and you reached out to LG and they offered to send you masks. So right. that's if anyone out there is a, an LG Pro member, um, that's, you can reach out to LG and they can, they can help procure masks for you. Yeah, so, Kevin was actually talking to an LG Chem guy. So we got our first like 120 masks from LG Chem. And now the LG Pro people are now offering them. So all you need to do is just go out to the, your website if you're an LG Pro member and then right on the, you know, just log in and it says, how many do you want? And then they just send them. So it is, it is, it is nice to have. Great. Doug, I'd like to, to jump over to you. Um, and we got a question about workman's comp. You know, while many workers are, are back on the job site, you know, office staff might still be working from home. Um, if an employee is working at home, are they eligible for workman's comp? And you're muted, actually, so there you go. The short answer is, is, is yes. If they're working, you know, in, in their capacity or their role for the company, you know, workers comp would be eligible. But I mean, there are basics of, of like a coming and going rule where, you know, typically driving to the office wouldn't be covered, but driving to a job site could be covered. And obviously with people working at home, you know, they're gonna look at, well, okay, well, it, it, did they stub their toe on the kitchen table? I mean, what was the cause of that injury? Um, but the short answer is yes, but they're going to look at what happened. You know, was it really in the course of their employment? Um, and, and each state will be a little bit different. California is quite a bit more liberal than some states, but the answer to that would be yes. Okay. Slightly related to that, you know, if an employee contracts uh, COVID-19, is that also a workman's comp claim? Yeah, if you if you talk to enough attorneys and insurance brokers, and, and Grant will probably laugh at this, it, it, so much of that is it really depends. Um, you know, generally speaking, it, the workers' comp language is, you know, if you're contracting the virus at work, it, it's not necessarily enough to trigger, you know, the assertion that it's compensable, you know, for an occupational work-related injury. So to be compensable, I mean, there has to be this increase, um, you know, in likelihood that you got exposed to, you know, the, the disease. And, and that's what um, was one of the causes for you getting sick. So you definitely, I mean, COVID-19 could be a workers' comp claim for sure. And, and I've heard a lot of very good things from uh, my peers on things that can, you know, mitigate that. Um, you know, case in point, though, is California, where it, it is easier to attach uh, COVID to the workers' comp system because I think it was May 6th that our governor, you know, uh, put an um, executive order out that really broadened the ability for comp to respond to it where, you know, typically you'd have 90 days to dispute a claim. That's now shrunk in California to 30. Um, some other states have followed, um, you know, but the, the business owners still have an opportunity to dispute it. But they also make it a presumption that it's, you know, a coverable claim from that executive order. So the, the biggest thing with the comp is, is really just stay on that pulse uh, of your employees and, and really work with your, your brokers quickly um, because the time frame is, is smaller. And once it gets past the time frame, you know, I call it, then you own that claim 
and you have to write it out. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of details with each state, um, you know, as far as how they would, you know, be categorized if they're covered with COVID-19, which definitely I'll, I'll save for, for another day. Okay, thanks. Steve, I'd like to bounce back over to you. When, when we're talking about uh, safety on the job site and, and getting buy-in from, from team members and workers, um, you know, how do you encourage folks to do that? Do you, do you appeal to the health and safety of the crew? Do you make it a compliance thing? Um, what do you do to motivate people to, to stay safe and healthy? You know, one of the things that we have found is um, we would like to believe that 100% of our people on the job sites, for instance, are going to uh, be compliant for the health and safety of their people and the people around them. It, I, I couldn't agree more, but we have found that there is a small section of folks that still believe that they, you know, they want to buck the system or they want to not wear it for a variety of reasons. Um, what we have found is it's important to train. We have found that training and to tell them why it's important to do this um, is, is one of the factors of people being uh, more apt to choose the right choice, right? To be compliant, um, especially on construction sites now, uh, the new PPE is a face covering uh, because of masks being, you know, N95 masks being hard to get. Uh, a lot of folks, at Cal OSHA specifically, um, and some of the other states around are allowing those construction workers to wear face coverings, whether that's a bandana or what have you. Um, the simple fact is when we find, we find that when we teach them what it is, and have a requirement from the get-go and be consistent, everybody applies to that. Um, the other side of it is, and you don't like the penalty phase, right, of, of non-compliance, but we're seeing uh, citations for uh, construction sites not having face coverings. And so we, we have to deal with that. Now, uh, they're, they're citing them for other things, of course, but one of the citations is not the correct PPE when a known hazard is known like COVID-19, uh, that construction site has to uh, flex their requirements to make sure that all their folks are being attended to that. So yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We, we'd like to believe that everybody will do the right thing, but, but I think training um, and a consistent approach to our employees and those at the job sites will really help with having everybody put on the face mask, wearing gloves and being just sensitive to their environments and where they're at around other people. Great. Thanks, Steve. We got, we got a question from the audience uh, about um, communication with homeowner, and I want to get to that in just a minute. But just to the point about citations and, and potential audits, Lamara, um, you, you all have been um, installing the whole time. Have you had inspectors come by? Have you seen audits happening in Massachusetts where you are? Um, I can't actually speak to if we've had someone stop by, but if we have, we passed. <laughs> um, we actually, you know, we meet as an operations team frequently, especially through co the COVID pandemic. And that has come up, you know, some inspectors have, have talked about how they've visited job sites. And so we're constantly ready for it. And, and our construction manager visits our job sites himself uh, every day. And our guys are really, really good about it. And every, honestly, everyone is. Our office is fantastic about it as well. Um, but we know, like Steve said, we know that inspections are being done. I just can't personally say if, if 
any of our job sites have been visited by anyone, but I'm confident that we passed because there has been no negative feedback. (laughs) Thanks. Um, We had, so the question came in from Martha and it's, is anyone doing commercial and or multifamily projects? How and what do you find important to communicate to the property owner, residents and employees in commercial buildings? What are, are their reactions? What are the tactics being used to appease potential fear? Grant, is that something that, that you want to tackle? Maybe Catherine has some insight too. I'm sure Lamara has some experience. Yeah, we do commercial and multifamily projects. Um, the communication with the property owner, property management has become more critical. They might have their own procedures. Um, you need to be following them and then fortunately most of our work is outdoors and you're able to limit your interaction with the the occupants um but the the coordination of communication to any of the residents in a multifamily project we still think would need to go through the property manager and what they would like to do the the question on residential we have found too that i agree completely with steve everything is local but it gets even more local when you're residential, uh, residential business as each homeowner might have its own expectations of what safety is. And we have had some homeowner, homeowners um, give us suggestions as to what we should be doing. And if we weren't able to comply, we, we have uh, very respectfully uh, come back another day um, so that we could comply with whatever they would like. Great. Lamara, I believe you, you have some uh, a story to tell even. Like it seems people in Massachusetts are, are chomping at the bit to get their installations done. Uh, can you tell us about the, the video experience you had with a homeowner? Yeah, that's true, especially with the, the turn of nice weather here in Massachusetts. Everyone's really eager to have their solar on their roof because the sun is finally out. Yeah. Um, In the beginning, we were all worried, you know, our main focus as a company and as human beings is to make sure that we're flattening the curve. And we really put people at ease by quickly coming together, putting a safety plan in place that we could present to them and say, we know you want us to come, we would really like to come, here is our safety plan, does it work for your, your personal space, right? Uh, our focus in the beginning was what kind of jobs can we go to immediately that like Grant is talking about that has outdoor work um, so that we could take some time to have the plan for what it would look like for us to go in someone's home because that in the beginning it was so radical. Um, And our customers that we did have to go in inside their home, they would send us a map you know, they would draw us a map, our front door is here, walk down this hallway, turn right at this painting. Um, and then that kind of evolved and customers send us videos <laughs> so that our crew knows what to look for and how to navigate their, their home if we have to go inside. Our focus is still to really concentrate on places we can go do everything outside. Um, But in the cases that we have to enter a home, we are fully equipped with PPE. We have Tyvek suits, um, booty covers, face covers. We're we're safe um, and we're following their guidelines. So like like Grant said, you know, it's specific and more localized when you get to that residential level. It's, It's almost case by case. Great. 
I want to touch on some health and, and, and wellness and, and um, thinking about employees' mental health. Steve, um, before, we, before we switch topics, what are you recommending in terms of occupants uh, in the home? Um, should there be barriers set up? Uh, what are you training people on? You know, if we're talking about home, I, I couldn't agree more with Grant. We need to talk with the, um, with the owner of what they're, um, what they're recommending and what they're comfortable with. Um, but I would tell you this, if the owner says, come on in without a mask, I, I still caution our companies to say they need to have their standard. If the standard is higher from the resident, then we need to take that into consideration and make plans to help. But uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I was visited by someone that had to come into my home. Um, he came in with a face mask and gloves on. He um, told me exactly what he needed to do from the outside of my front lawn. Um, I was there, but we had good social distancing. And he walked in, spent a few minutes with his gloves and mask on doing what he needed to do. He then left for me a wipe of a sterilized alcoholic wipe and a pair of gloves in a sealed bag in case I felt like grabbing the box he left or what have you. But it was up to me. He left without a single touch of any payment, no signatures, I didn't have to do anything, and he walked back outside. My wife stayed in the other room because there was no need for everybody to be crowded around him. And I don't necessarily believe we need, um, you need all these barriers, but it all depends on the work. And if you have a client installing something and you've got to work inside a, a confined space, you're, you're going to have to if there is a plastic sheet, you know, a painter puts up a plastic sheet for a barrier when they paint. Right. If, a, if, the, if the customer wants that, feels that that's the need, then we need to decide whether or not this customer is worth doing that, if that's something the company wants to do. Um, at the very least, our, our people walking in should have a face covering, should have gloves, and are really talking to the owner about what they're going to do to make them safe and yeah. let the owner make the decision as well. So. That's great. That's a good story. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Catherine, I want to shoot over to you. Um, we, we talked a little bit uh, last week about how important it is for you to feel like uh, your crews are being heard uh, and that their needs are being addressed. And I think, you know, we all understand that, you know, uh, being an essential worker, we're asking solar contractors to be out, you know, exposing themselves to a higher level of risk than we are the general population. So I think as employers, you know, and, and uh, owners, you're very cognizant of trying to make them feel comfortable. So how are you, uh, what steps are you taking to communicate to your employees that their needs are being heard and that you care about them? Thank you. Um, you know, of course the employees, um, you know, we're still in a period where um, with all this unemployment, we still can't get enough people to do the job. <clears throat> so we need to keep the ones we have. Um, that are working. And I think, I mean, the simple question always is, is ask, you know, ask them. But what we found is that our employees have tended to want to be more cautious than the requirements by our local municipality and then as well as our state. So um, our crews were, used, were wearing masks back in March and they all, they all chose to wear masks and, and, and we were luckily able to provide them. Something that's happened recently as we, we're talking to them and of course as we're getting over 100 degrees, they are preferring not to wear the, um, they prefer to wear the cloth mask versus the paper ones. Mm. And so um, one of our employees' mothers 
went ahead and made everybody masks. And so, um, you know, we're seeing that. And I, I feel that, you know, at first there were some that were wearing the bandanas, but I don't think that provides enough coverage. So we've suggested that they use masks, the full, the full face masks. But, you know, asking, um, you know, I've heard people talk about gloves. Um, we have our guys, of course, out on the, on the field are wearing gloves, but there are, we, we also do solar thermal. So um, I've gotten some feedback that wearing gloves while you're soldering pipe doesn't really work very well. So, um, you know, they've said, well, you know, do we really, do we have to wear the gloves if we're doing this? And I, you know, I say, well, in actuality, from what we hear, gloves don't really provide any more protection and that gloves, in fact, may give you a false sense of protection. So if you don't feel comfortable wearing gloves at that point, that's your choice. And we weren't, we're not going to make you do it. So. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, Catherine. Uh, on the mental health side of things, Boaz, um, I'd like to kick it over to you again. Since the COVID crisis began, we've been hosting daily internal town halls and we're checking in with our internal staff. Can you talk about the role that that's played for us and, and maybe the change that you've seen since we started doing that uh, and up to now? Yeah, um, and, and it's still changing. So, so yeah, one of the first things we did, I think March 16th was um, set a daily town hall. And, and the intent then was um, for people to be able to ask questions um, about anything that concerned them. And for me to be able to share information in a, kind of single source of truth way um, so that all of the, the, you know, there was so much information coming at people from so many directions then that it was, um, it was really difficult for any, any employee to, to understand how the organization was putting that information together. So initially it was <clears throat> for me to be able to tell people, here's what's going on as far as I can tell and for them to ask questions. Um, but then it flipped over to um, we recognized that everybody was dealing with um, the the COVID crisis on a physical, psychological, emotional, intellectual level, <clears throat> and all of those on all of those levels, um, everybody was going through a long series of transitions in um, in how they were managing that. Um, I think likening that set of transitions to grief is, is relevant because obviously we left behind what was happening and we had to accept it. We had to go through stages in order to accept it and be able to look forward. Um, and so we started um, uh, just having whoever wants to check in and, and share what's going on in their life. Um, and, and the format of the daily town hall moved to that. And um, we, we have a method we use called popcorning where, you know, one person calls on the next. So rather than me moderating that whole thing, we just have, you know, um, Jessica will check in and here's what's going on in my life and popcorn it over to Amanda and Amanda will check in. Um, and what we saw was that people really needed that space for connection and to be able to talk about what they cooked that weekend or that they're having a hard time with isolation or that they're stressed out because they have some changes going on in their life and they can't get the direct support from their family in person that they would normally get, or they were impacted because somebody they know has 
um, coronavirus. And so um, that became a really important safe space, I think, for, for people. And I was getting um, a lot of instant messages about, you know, this is the highlight of my day and this means so much to me. And it was just half an hour. Um, after that, it transitioned to um, during the town hall, about half of it is now taken up with an update from one team or another, uh, whether that's um, dealing with hey, an update on what's happening in our next solar town hall, um, an update on our scenario planning. Um, you mentioned uh, Guillaume earlier. He's, he's responsible for kind of looking at the macro data. And so he reports to the whole company once a week. Here's what I'm seeing. So, so now we're reporting out in a more organized way. And I think the next step as we go into the next stage of transition is scaling it back from daily. Um, and I'm not sure we need to get more feedback from our people, but I have a sense that people have in, in our company, at least have moved through most of what they need to, in order to be in a state of acceptance. And we're now entering a new chapter of, um, yeah, we still need to check in. We still need to talk about what's happening. But the <clears throat> the kind of visceral experience that people were having in the second half of March uh, in early April, that's not really happening anymore. There's still transition, but it's not like um, everybody needs to be on a call together half an hour every day. So, so we're still figuring out what we're going to do June 1st, but that's generally been the trajectory. And I think it's been really meaningful for us and brought us closer together as a team. I totally agree. Yeah, it has been really helpful. Um, I was going to ask you about, Boaz, about phase transitions between, you know, crisis mode to, to what we're looking ahead towards, maybe as a phase two, as we start to reopen. But I don't think we're going to have time for that. But I did want to touch on, you know, some of the other aspects of what it means to open up now and to start having more jobs. And, and Doug, I want to I pop over to you now. Um, and to talk about what we can do to lower costs. Um, if a company is forecasting, and you're muted by the way, just so you know, if a company is forecasting lower annual revenue, um, what types of conversations can they have with their insurance broker about you know, possible costs that they can reduce? Yeah, first and foremost, really call your broker and, and ask what type of relief they might suggest. Um, and see, because each state and each carrier is going to have their own subtleties and nuances. Um, but some examples of what they can do is, you know, most of the general liability policies are, are written so that there's a, a minimum premium. And unless that, that revenue projection, whether it's gross sales or payroll, is, is reduced, you, you can really get stuck paying for um, insurance premiums that you didn't necessarily, you know, quote unquote, used because maybe you were forecasted at 10 million in sales and you did seven. So really looking at your, your, your top line, your gross sales, and if those need to be adjusted um, in, in, in concert with that um, payrolls, uh, as far as your field payrolls um, and for workers comp as well. So that will help with the general liability on the workers comp because of, of COVID-19, the carriers, and the premium finance companies are really open to reducing those. Um, and so there's no penalty. And so they can reduce those numbers. Then you go back to the premium finance and then you're reducing your payment. Now there's still going to be an audit. So, I mean, if you, if you do X amount of sales, it's going to be times your rate, same thing with payroll, but from a cash flow standpoint, that could be really 
um, effective. And then on the workers' comp side, I mean, if you still have some people that are sheltered in place and you're just paying them to stay at home, in some states like California, you can actually reclassify them to clerical, um, which is a, a very small rate compared to your field installers, as, as most people on the call probably know. And then the same thing, if they're also then doing clerical work at home and it's a temporary basis um, because there's, there's uh, very strong exceptions with the clerical class code, you can get that class code for the month, however it is, until they're back to in the field working. So those are two or three areas that really make sense. Um, you might even be able to get some reductions in your auto premiums if it's rated more on a mileage type basis. But really call, call your broker and, and bend their ear and, and talk about it and then uh, be prepared to then just kind of show hardship and, and really work with the carriers. Um, the biggest thing I'm hearing from everybody today is, is which is wonderful, is communication. Uh, communication with everybody, whether it's your employees, your clients, um, your, your vendors, uh, you know, so it's, um, you know, I think there'd be some positive things that come from this, but those are some things that hopefully can give you some rate relief, if you will. Great. One follow-up to that. You mentioned a uh, business income interruption during, during our call. Is that something folks can make a claim on during this time? Yeah. I mean, show of hands, just kidding. Um, but you know, business interruption is that type of claim where, you know, if there's a coverable loss and, and your business, you can't go to your business anymore, that lost revenue can be um, found in a business income limit. The, the challenge is, and, and I'm not a coverage attorney for your specific insurance carrier, but it, it's all kind of connected to what we call direct physical damage or loss. So, you know, a lot of attorneys are trying to find coverage underneath the business uh, income um, underneath um, uh, civil authority, uh, ingress, e ingress, egress, but all of those by definition, you know, they need physical damage. And so with this COVID-19, it's really a virus. So it's more of an economic loss. So you're going to have a very hard time actually getting coverage under that, but it doesn't hurt to file a claim. I mean, you file the claim. So you're on the record, the carriers know, We've had some clients do it because that helps them with their um, small business loan. And then also too, on the outside chance that uh, a legislative um, uh, interference or solution comes where, where they make the carriers redefine, you know, what business interruption trigger would be, you'll be at least queued up at the, at the front of the, the line so that you potentially can, you know, get some, um, you know, some payment for that. But generally speaking, the, the property insurance policies, which is a part of business interruption, they weren't designed to, to handle a COVID type of pandemic or a virus. Great. So I, I, hope that, uh, I hope that gives you some, not great news, but accurate news. That's helpful. Thanks, Doug. So I'd like to start to wrap up here and I'm gonna ask all of our panelists to give um, their, their top two recommendations. Top three would be great, but I don't think we have time. But, um, you know, what should people be prioritizing? What should they focus on as you know regions start to open up, as restrictions start to 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 be lifted? Steve, let's start with you. What do you What are your top two recommendations for solar contractors right now? Uh, my top two recommendations is first training. Um, a lot of your guys, whether they've been with you the, during this time or you're bringing them back, training of of the new, uh, especially COVID-19 regulations, what have you, is terribly important. And the second thing is PPE. 
um, as you train your folks on the reasons why they need to do it and what are the things going on, uh, that PPE, face coverings, and uh, you know things like that, it's it's real paramount. So those are the two things I would say be ready for. Appreciate it, Steve. Catherine, let's, let's kick it over to you. What are your two recommendations? Well, I kind of went a little bit different direction. I think flexibility is really important. Um, you know, as our state is deciding that we need to reopen, um, the staff is not feeling that comfortable to change the, our protocols. And so being able to be flexible and um, realizing that there are going to be different expectations between our customers and what is allowed for by the, the state. The second thing, and I'm going to get on, you know, this is going ahead supporting all of the Baywa town halls and everything was going on, is uh, as solar contractors, this is a great opportunity for us to leverage our participation and membership in local and community groups. Um, I've been able to take some of the information that I've taken from and gotten from this, these, the town halls and forward it on to other contractors and um, with our home builders groups. And, and so we are now looked at and I'm getting questions from people like, what do you think we should do about this? Or what do you think we can do about that? So it's in, it, it kind of gives us an opportunity because generally the solar contractors sort of the, the odd person out in most of our contractor associations. But now if, because we are becoming and being a little bit more flexible and available, we can be, we can actually leverage that and uh, make the solar community even stronger. Awesome. Lamara, how about you? What are your two recommendations for us? Um, my first recommendation is to communicate with your team effectively. Um, keep in contact with them. Make sure that your employees are, are comfortable at work um, and make sure your, your clients, you're all on the same page and you're working together because work doesn't flow smoothly if, if communication isn't there. And uh, the procurement side of me is coming out. Look at your schedule um, and run forecasts frequently. I'm, I'm submitting 90-day expense forecasts every week uh, to my team, kind of reminding them this is what's open, this is what we're bringing in. And my focus now is to bring in material that will be billable and leaving our space in 30 days. Okay, thanks. Grant? Share the communication. I think the communication, effective communication, transparent communication is one of the most critical things we can do, not with, within our company only, uh, but within our partners, our peers, uh, as Catherine said, uh, other companies that we compete against in the market. Um, if we can all get through this stronger, we'll all be better uh, in, in the future. My other would be um, is that know that everybody's approaching this differently. And so you need to be very open-minded, both for your employees, as we talked about, for customers and how you do it. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution that we can provide. Great. Thanks, Doug. Two thoughts? Well, you, all the great ones in the, have been taken already. But um, all right, so since I'm the insurance broker, definitely you know, review your exposures. If your exposures and your forecast is down, definitely see if you can uh, trim those numbers and get some relief there. And, and then along the liability side, I, I like what everybody is saying about communication, communication, and I wanna just add one more. You know, for the owners and the executive teams, be a leader. I mean, really lead your team and let them know how important this is, you know, because that's gonna build the soft stuff, the trust, the respect. Um, they're gonna feel valued. And 
very rarely the people who are appreciated and the value and trust you, do they sue you. So that will just naturally reduce your liability exposure. And obviously there's just a ton of benefits that come from that. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. Um, so I'm going to hand it back to Boaz for the last word, but before I do, our producer, Jessica, is going to add a link uh, to the chat for our town hall survey. Our goal of these town halls is to really support our solar community, so we'd like to hear from you what's, what's at the top of your mind. What are your pain points? What can we do to help support you with these town halls? So I'd suggest going ahead and click that link uh, in the chat, open it up in your browser, save it for later, that way you have it. Uh, we really appreciate your input so we can bring the most high value uh, and the best guests possible, just like our group today. So I'd like to say goodbye to all of our panelists now. We had Steve Crawley from GotSafety.com, Doug Esposito from Owen Dunn Insurance Services and Assured Partners. On the contractor side, we had Grant Farrell, President uh, and CFO of Enable Energy, Lamar Darbeloff from Sunbug Solar, uh, and Catherine Kent from Arizona. So Boaz, I'd like to kick it over to you. Um, thank you again to our guests um, and Boaz, you can say goodbye. Thank you, Tom. Um, yeah, what a great panel. Um, thanks to everybody for joining us. Um, there were a couple of things um, that I took away today that um, weren't mentioned in that last round. One was something Steve said about setting your own standard um, and there's, um, uh, something powerful there for for being able to um, kind of define what your norm is as a company for for managing safety and um, and as as Doug said role modeling that for your team um, and I think we had a comment about that too so um, yeah setting a standard instead of um, kind of um, making it up on the fly and it's okay you can change the standard if you need to in a week or in a month or whatever you need to do. Um, the other takeaway was something Lamara said a while ago, um, which was uh, we formed a plan as a team and executed it that day, um, which is, she made it sound really easy, but um, the, the takeaway there is you need to put teams together to make decisions and make plans in ways that we haven't had to before. Um, and giving your, um, your people the guidance to and, and the permission and the encouragement and the support to come together cross-functionally and in ways that they don't typically to solve problems that we don't typically have or to tackle opportunities that are new to us. Um, I think that's a huge takeaway as well as um, we figure out what the new normal might look like. Um, thanks again to all of our panelists and to all of our attendees, to Tom and Jessica. It's been a pleasure being with you today. Happy to be back and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.